Father, I praise you once again, Lord. We come to a very precious time, Lord, of studying your word. I want to praise you for your word, which is eternal. I want to thank you because in it we have the mind of Christ revealed to us. And Father, I thank you because it never changes. Father, thousands of years ago when it was first designed, it's the same as it is today. And Father, in a thousand years' time, it will still be the same. It's the word of God that lives and abides forever. Father, how, what a wonderful privilege it is, Lord, that you've revealed it to us. You've revealed it to the young Lord in you, and I praise you for that. Father, perhaps we're the most hungry of all. Father, I know, Lord, that there is no one here, Lord, who is not hungry, that will not be satisfied. And indeed, Lord, I praise you, because my own heart, Lord, will be satisfied, with, uh, and the thirst for your word will be quenched. So, Father, we praise you for a wonderful, wonderful day today, Lord. And we ask you, Lord, that your blesses abundantly this evening. Thank you. Yes, Father. Hallelujah. All right. Now, the third of the course. Um, it's rather strange, isn't it? Because last week we saw the problem. I'll recap a bit on that in just a moment. And we left the answer. Tonight we've got the answer, which is... So thrilling. Um, we're living in days of change. <clears throat> I found myself this afternoon during the election results coming in strangely disturbed and really rather depressed. And I even developed a sort of headache during the afternoon. And it was so marvellous because I asked the Lord, Lord, why have I got a headache? What is this about? And the Lord showed me that I was really concerned about the future of this country. And he said to me, have you or have you not prayed about it? Has the body prayed or has it not prayed? And I said, yes, Lord, it's prayed. And <clears throat> the tension went, and the Lord showed me that if we prayed about it, then we can leave it in him. You know, the marvelous thing is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it doesn't matter how much you change or how much circumstances change, there's peace in Jesus. Hallelujah. All we have to do is be preoccupied with the person of Jesus. We have to lose self in Jesus. And we're going to know what it is to have peace and stability in every area of our life. And there's no problem that can come against you and dominate you when your eyes are on Jesus. It's a wonderful promise. What did we see last week? We saw how one man doomed the whole of humankind. We saw that Adam, in his sin, has led to the misery of millions and millions of people. We saw the barrier that was put between God and man. Next week we're going on to one of the bricks in the barrier. And we're going to see how Jesus, the only one who could do it, took care of each and every brick. Next week it's one brick that's going to be removed. In the way that he removes one, he's removed the lot. There is now no barrier at all between you and God except for the cross of Jesus. And here's the important thing. It's what you think about Jesus that counts. You see... It doesn't say, live a good life and you will be saved. It says, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. The issue isn't sin, the issue isn't living a good life, the issue isn't going to church regularly, the issue isn't doing this or doing that, doing the other. The issue is, what thinkest thou of Christ? The issue is, how do you view Jesus? That's the issue. And he is the answer. Through Adam, the curse came into the world. Now, let's have a quick look at this. Each one of us has two parts. When we were born, we all had two parts. We had a body and we had a soul. But when we were born, that's all we had. 
When Adam was created, he had three parts. He had a body, a soul, and a spirit. Those three. Now, with the body, you experience the world. Satan gets in through your body very often. You experience the world. In your soul, you experience yourself and other people. Because in the soul is self-consciousness. It's your personality, it's your mentality, conscience is there, this is all part of the soul. And when Adam was created, he also had a spirit. Now, the spirit communicates with God. So he had a body to appreciate the world, and it, what a world it was to appreciate as well. He had a soul to appreciate himself, his wife, and the Lord Jesus. And he had a spirit to communicate with God through the Lord Jesus. God is a spirit and he communicates spiritually. The moment Adam sinned, and we saw it in the fall, if you remember, he died because God had warned him, dying, thou shalt die. God said you will die spiritually with the result that you will die physically, eventually. And we saw how through one man's disobedience, sin came into the world and we saw finally that in Adam all die. The amazing thing is that the answer is given in the same passage where the problem is expounded. Now where was the problem expounded? Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to begin. Turn back please to Genesis chapter 3. And here we begin. When Adam sinned, and we saw this if you remember in uh, Genesis 3 verse 6, at the fall, when Adam sinned, not only did his spirit die, but something else was created inside. The old sin nature was created inside. Every person in this room has still got it. And if you don't believe that Adam fell, you don't know something about yourself. You don't know you've got no sin nature right here. If you're a Christian and have tried to move in the spirit, you know it's true. Because it's the very thing that rebels all the time against the move of God. God wants to move in our lives. But the old sin nature, no, 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 it doesn't want to move. It wants to hold you back all the time. So, Adam sinned, his spirit died, and an old sin nature came into the world. And the amazing thing is, the old sin nature was passed on to every single person. When Cain and Abel were born, they had a body, they had a soul, but they were spiritually dead, and in place of the spirit they had an old sin nature. Lucky them. And they were the first two of many. When you were born, the moment, the instant you were born, you had a soul, you had a body, and you had an old sin nature. And the split second after you came out of the womb, you needed saving. Yes. You hadn't done one sin, you hadn't done anything wrong, but you had an old sin nature inside of you. And that means that if you grow up, Indeed, you were going to sin. Man is a sinner, not because he sins, but because he's got an old sin nature. And in Adam, he died. It was in Adam that that was passed on. And here's the amazing thing. Adam passed it on, and every man passes the old sin nature on to his children. Every man and woman in this room has received an old sin nature from your father. Why? He, Adam, sinned deliberately. And we saw last week, if you remember, that they were both in the sin, but they had a different role. Eve was deceived. Adam did it deliberately. And this old sin nature passed on through Adam. And do you remember, we ended on passing the buck. 
Do you remember that? Passing the buck. It's what you and I do most of our lives, if we can get away with it. God came and he questioned. First of all, he questioned the man. Now, I've written the order out. He first of all questioned the man. The man immediately blamed the woman. He then blamed God. And the woman then blamed the serpent. So, when Jesus asked, whose fault is this? The man was the first to get the blame. Not for long, because the men generally pass on the blame as quickly as possible. He passes on to the woman, and to God, and onto the serpent. And here's grace for you. Because when judgment is poured out, it's done in reverse order. Let's have a look. We ended last time, verse four, uh, 13. Verse 13. Now have a look. There is the order in which the sin was seen to go. Man, woman, God, serpent. In verse 14, beginning at the bottom, the serpent is cursed. It begins at the bottom and then works its way up again. Now this is beautiful, isn't it? Do you see God's plan in it? Judgment comes down one way, and then it goes up the other way. The serpent was the last to be blamed, and he's the first to be judged. And that's verse 14. Verse 15, we get God's answer. And verse 15, Genesis 3.15, is the first mention of the gospel found in the Holy Bible. The first mention of the gospel. And it's vitally important, this. This was when the gospel was preached to Adam. <coughs> Adam, today, you might be interested to know, is in heaven. Yes, and so is Eve, because they both believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Especially as they were so religious. They actually tried to cover up their sin themselves. But finally, the uh, idiocy of, of it all was pointed out to them. They believed on the Lord. They're in heaven at this very moment. And we're going to see that salvation, which is so thrilling. Right, that's verse 15. Verse 16, we get the judgment on the woman. And verse 17, then, we get the judgment on the man. Do you see? It's the reverse order. The reverse order. There's also something else very beautiful. Notice, I wish I could turn this upside down, actually. We get the serpent judge first, and here we get salvation. And after salvation is preached, we get the judgment on the man and the woman. Now, there are two points. Salvation does not apply to animals. I'm ever so sorry for you cat lovers here, and I know some of you probably won't be back. But there is no salvation for a cat. A cat doesn't need salvation. Neither is there salvation for a goldfish, nor any other of your, your pets. And a serpent has no salvation at all. If we take the serpent representative of Satan, Satan had his chance and he rejected it. By the time Genesis 3.15 had come along, he was, it was already decided as far as Satan was concerned. So notice, God, first of all, judges the serpent. That's the first thing. <coughs> then, before he goes on to judge the man and the woman, grace comes into play. Before the judgment, you always get grace. Salvation comes next. And then you get the judgment of the man and the woman. Why was salvation preached first? Because salvation applied to the man and the woman. And you always get blessing before you get cursing. Always. Always the gospel first, and then you get the judgment. And if you believe on the gospel, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's thrilling. Right, let's have a look. Beginning, first of all, verse 14. 
Now, it's very interesting. You remember last week we saw how the serpent was the most brilliant of the animals. The name Nakash means brilliant one. We saw how Saku means beautiful, shining. Yes, how beautiful. The first thing to be judged was the serpent. It's very interesting, this. Today, most people don't like snakes. Have you noticed that? Um, at one time, there is a lot of proof to suggest that the serpent was entirely different from the form that it's in today. Most people don't like serpents. Most people would prefer not to have a snake or a pet python in the corner of their house, or a rattlesnake, or a king cobra. They prefer not to have it, you see. Very interesting, that. And do you know, partly, I believe, that proves to us the judgment on the serpent. It bears in its body now the judgment from Genesis 3, 14. Have you noticed also, it cannot rise very high, a serpent or a snake. can't rise very high. It goes along the ground, and it's very rare that you meet a snake face to face. You can, of course, if you lie flat on the ground, you can meet them face to face any time. But if you're walking through the jungle, they don't, on the whole, rear up. There are actually two or three species that do. Uh, these rear up, and you can be walking through the jungles of India and suddenly gazing you in the face will be one of the Indian poisonous snakes, and you have to decide then what to do about it. But most snakes can't. You see, they don't have to rise up. A snake kills you, if it's venomous, simply by getting hold of one part of your body and injecting its poison into that part. Our weakness is our feet. You see, as you walk through the jungle, the serpent doesn't have to raise itself up. All it has to do is bite your foot. And it's your bloodstream that takes the poison right through your body and right down again. And don't worry, it won't be your foot that just dies. It's going to be all of you, you see. A man has a great advantage over a snake, because a man is upright. The snake really is very vulnerable as far as man is concerned. Okay, let's see the judgment first of all before we get on to that. <coughs> Verse 14. And the Lord God, and we know who he is, said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. And here's the curse. Upon thy belly shalt thou go. It's absolutely fantastic, this, but snakes move by moving their spines. They wiggle from side to side, and that's the only way they can move. They walk on their stomachs. They don't have any legs to carry them. No, it's true. You just look around. If you don't believe Genesis 3, 14... You just have a look around you. And there they are, the snakes, on their stomachs. Next. And dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. This is nothing. It doesn't have any arms. It can't pick up its prey and dust it off and then eat it. No. It, I'm afraid, because it can't do that, it has to swallow its prey whole. And everything else goes in too. The dirt and the dust that is on that particular prey. That was part of the judgment on the serpent. Now, having said that, we now come on to the glorious message of salvation. And this is the first statement of it in the Bible, and it's very important. Now, let's get it. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I want you to notice this. No mention of the man anywhere. Adam doesn't come into the picture at all. 
Let's have a look and see what it says. I will put enmity. Now, this is the word enemy. I'm going to make an enemy. There's going to be a fantastic hatred between you two. And who's it between? Between thee, that's the serpent, and the woman. And then it goes on. And between thy seed and her seed. Now, here we get the reference directly to Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is described as that, that serpent. And here we have to see the person who is behind the plot which tried to ruin mankind. It's Satan himself here. And what is said here is there's going to be enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. That's what is stated here. Now, we've got to get this right. Who are the seed of Satan? Who are they? Well, once again, the Bible is its own commentary, and we don't have to look very far. John chapter 8. If you turn, keep your finger in the place, and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 23, first of all. Don't forget... We're trying to find out who is the seed of the serpent. John 8, 23. And he said unto them, this is Jesus, Ye, and he's talking to the Jews, are from beneath. I am from above. Now, can you see? They're two separate places. You Jews, they're unbelievers, are from beneath. I, says Jesus, am from above. Ye are of this world... And by the way, Satan is the god of this world, as you know. Um, I, uh, where are we? Hold on. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you, that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. But there's uh, the gospel being given, by the way, to the unbelieving Jews. Many people think Jesus never preached the gospel. Dear. Now let's turn over uh, to verse 44. This is John 8, 44. And he's talking once again to religious Jews. What's he say? Ye are of your father the devil. Does it? Ye, and he's talking to the Jews. What a thing to, oh, what a thing to say to these religious Jews. Jesus said, ye are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Do you know that? There is no truth in Satan at all. And if you are walking in darkness, or listening to Satan, you are not getting any truth at all. Jesus is the only one we listen to. We don't listen to a man, we listen to Jesus. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar, and the father of it. Now, here's the amazing thing. Every single person that's born into this world is of their father, the devil. Why? Because you're dead. You have an old sin nature inside. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? Every single unbeliever in this world, I'm afraid, belongs to the fatherhood of Satan. There is no such thing as brotherhood of man. There isn't. We hear such a lot about it. There are two distinct camps in the world today. There are those who have their father in heaven, and there are those who have their father in Satan. And there, is no there are no shades of grey in this. You are either black or you're white. 
and we're white. Praise God. In case you didn't know that, we are white. <laughs> Our Father is in heavenly places at this moment. We are born again. We are of the family of God. Every person who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is still in bondage to this world and is in bondage to the God of this world. You see? Now, can you see the problem here? And Jesus said, his seed, Satan's seed, and the woman's seed are going to have enmity. They're going to hate one another. Jesus said the same. Jesus said, the world will hate you. In the world you will have tribulation. We've got tribulation right now. You see, each one of us has got it. There is enmity between Satan's seed, the unbelievers, and us. There must be. There has to come a point when you are different. You see, there has to come a point. The gospel has split families in half. The gospel has split love affairs. The gospel has come in. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. You see, it's not the peace of Jesus that is referred to as world peace. The peace of Jesus is peace between man and God. And any person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and here's the amazing thing about it, can have peace with God. But it won't give you peace in this world. There is always enmity between Satan's seed on the one hand and God's seed on the other. There's an absolute difference between the two. Who's the seed of the woman? The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Not the seed of the man, notice. Now why? This is so important, we've got to get it. Because this is a reference now to the virgin birth. There are many people in the world today, and Christians, who think that the virgin birth is not important. Yet the first statement of the Gospel, given in the Bible, emphasizes the virgin birth as it emphasizes nothing else at all. Why was the virgin birth necessary? That's the issue. You see? And it's a very important one. You cannot appreciate your salvation unless you understand the virgin birth. Now, let's, let's see. I'm just going to repeat quickly. Adam sinned. Because of Adam's sin, an old sin nature was passed on through the man every time. Every child that's born into, into the world who has a man, a human man, as his father, is born with a body, a soul, and an old sin nature and is therefore born a sinner. Now, we are all then, when we're born, slaves to sin. Who is going to buy the slaves out of the slave market of sin? Who can buy them? A free man can. Well, you name a free man. You name one. Did ma all you had to ask yourself is, did the Redeemer you believe in have a father? If he did, he's not a free man, because he's got no sin nature. That's the issue, you see. Mahatma Gandhi's in there, Buddha's in there, in the slave market of sin, with you, you see. All of them, Mary Baker Eddy, they're all in the slave market of sin. Every single one. I'd like to name that, so on. <laughs> Do you see? They're all in there. Now, have you ever heard such a Has a slave ever bought another slave into freedom? Ever? Have you, would you ever go along to an auction of slaves and suddenly one of the slaves says, oh yes, I'll have him? <laughs> No, of course not. It takes a free man. And the only free man there could be must be a man who has not got an old sin nature. And as you get an old sin nature from your father, it has to be a man who is born without a father. Oh, the plan of God is incredible, isn't it? The virgin birth was so necessary. And 4,000 years before Mary conceived as a virgin, Genesis had it all. 
you see. Genesis 3.15 states the virgin birth and it states salvation. And it's without this understanding of the old sin nature, you cannot understand why a virgin birth was necessary. Now, isn't it amazing? When Jesus was born, he did not have a human father. So he was born with a body, he was born with a soul, he was born with a spirit, and he didn't have an old sin nature. Jesus was the only person who was born who was not a sinner at the moment of birth. Oh, praise the Lord. I mean, I'm, I'm so overcome at the beauty of it, you know. It's so fantastic, isn't it, when you realize the plan of God. And he invented this plan before the first man was ever made. In his omniscience, he knew that man was going to sin. Praise the Lord. And he had a plan. Right from the beginning, he had a plan about it all. And so we get the virgin birth. And Jesus then lived a perfect life. When he went onto the cross of Calvary, there wasn't a sin that anyone, Satan, any Jew, any Pharisee, no one could lay at his door. Now, it's a fantastic thing, isn't it? By the way, some people don't understand this, and I just want to spend a little time on it. Jesus is unique. And by unique, by the way, you mean only one. You can't have something that's very unique. It's either unique or it's not unique. You can't have something that's absolutely unique. It's only one. It's unique. Now, why is he unique? He's unique because, as a man, he's also God. Now, there is no man sitting in this room who is also God, though you might try to be. There's not a man sitting in this room. In fact, there is not a man in politics anywhere who is God. Do you see? So Jesus, as a man, was unique because he was also God. He was also God. But he's unique there, too. He's unique because God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were not men. They were God. But Jesus was God, and he was a man. Now, this is a mystery, if ever there was one. Because Jesus is a man, and he's God at the same time. And we call it the hypostatic union, but don't worry about that. He's God and man in one group. Now, the question is always asked, how did God die? The answer is, God did not die. Jesus did not die in his divinity. Now, how do we know that? Let's take a number of things. First of all, he's eternal life. Let's go to the character of God. One of the characteristics of God is eternal life. Now, eternal life has no beginning, it has no end, and it continues forever. Therefore, if Jesus was dead for three days on the cross, it couldn't have been his divinity that died. Because it's eternal. He's eternal life. This is his divinity I'm talking about. All right, and we'll see this from Isaiah in just a moment, by the way. Just get this down, because this is important. The next thing. He's omnipresent. God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. Jesus' humanity wasn't everywhere, but his divinity was everywhere. And very often he spoke to people and he knew what they were thinking. He was also omniscient. He knew exactly what every person was thinking. Now that's an amazing thing. Next, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Now if he's all-powerful, nothing can have power over him. Not in his Godhead. You see? Now, here's the amazing thing. His divinity didn't die, but his humanity did. Jesus combined the two. And the amazing thing is that in his humanity, in his body, he relinquished his own power and relied entirely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to get him through. Now, isn't that amazing? Let's just see that point, because it's an important one. Would you turn to Isaiah? Now, of one thing I'm convinced. Isaiah knew Genesis. 
And what's more, he studied Genesis 3.15. Of that, I'm absolutely convinced. He had such a knowledge of the virgin birth, it was amazing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7. It's going bang on time tonight, I think. Isaiah chapter 7. And verse 14. I will just take a few verses, and we'll see it. This is 700 years before Jesus was born, by the way. No wonder Isaiah was laughed at. No wonder. We have a much easier time than Isaiah ever had. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now, this was going to be a sign to the Jews that Messiah was coming. You see, the Jews were warned 700 years in advance of Messiah coming. They knew exactly when he would come because God gave several signs. Now, many of them are in Zechariah. The throwing down of the 30 pieces in the temple was one. The renting of the curtain in two was another. These were all signs that Messiah had come. The miracles Jesus did were his sort of card of Messiahship, his identification tag, you see. And everywhere he went, he did miracles. What should it have done? It should have proved... It should have absolutely proved that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you remember how ages ago we dealt with Leviticus 14 and we saw how, we saw how the leper was healed? Do you remember in the Gospels? And how he went to the temple to ask for the ceremony of healing. He was the first leper ever to be healed. That should have been a sign. But here God says, I will give you a sign. And what's the sign going to be? Behold. Aha. I love that word, behold. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I've been over this before, I'm just going to repeat it. It's absolutely true that the word virgin here in Hebrew also means a young woman. And if ever a Hebrew scholar says to you, ah yes, but the Hebrew word for a virgin also is the word for a young woman, you must say, you are right. Fortunately for us, it's also mentioned in Matthew. And in Matthew, there's a Greek word. And it's quoted in Greek, translated into Greek. And the Greek word, I'm afraid, for all these modernists around who think that Mary was just a w young woman and that she wasn't a virgin, I'm afraid the Greek word is very definite. It does not mean young woman. It only means a virgin. You see, this is very important. So, there we go. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is 700 years before the birth occurred. He knew it was going to be a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. Why? The Father was God. That's it. And the word sign there is also a miracle. It was going to be a miracle. And what a miracle. But an essential one. I believe Isaiah must have studied Genesis 3.15. You see, to have known all this. Let's turn over. Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, and this is terribly important, verse 6, let's just take the first part of it, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, this is so important, the word child here means a young baby, unto us a child is born. That is the humanity of Jesus. That's his flesh. A young child is born. Born because Mary 
was his mother. But notice the next part. Unto us a son is given. And the word son here means an adult, mature son is given. And that's his divinity. As the son of God, we get the two here combined. Unto us a child is born is the humanity. Unto us a son is given is his divinity. And the two come hand in hand at this point. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is in the millennium. In the millennium, Jesus shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. So there we get a reference to the millennium immediately. That meant Isaiah understood all about the millennium as well, which he proves anyway in other passages. No wonder people don't understand this unless they understand about the millennium. The next. And his name, and this is Jesus, shall be called, and this has caused so much confusion you'll be amazed, Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now let's take those. First of all, Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor. Indeed, he's a wonderful counselor. He's the one who gives us advice. And notice what he said, I must go to my Father, or else, uh, oh sorry, or when, and when I get there, I will send you another counselor talking about the Holy Spirit. Another counsellor. Now what he's saying is, I'm a counsellor, but I must go to my Father, and then you'll get another counsellor. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor, indeed. Next, the mighty God. Jesus is God. And by the way, this is a reference to Jesus as clear as anything, isn't it? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Of course Jesus is God. Next, the Everlasting Father. Aha, this, is, this causes it, lots of people problems. Can I give you a literal translation? He's the Father of Everlasting Life. Or he's the author of Everlasting Life. Or he's the source of Everlasting Life. That's Jesus. We're always told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because it's only in Jesus that you have eternal life. This isn't everlasting Father. It's the Father of everlasting life. It was through Jesus that it came about. It's the author of everlasting life. He was the one who gave everlasting life to us. And the Prince of Peace. This is peace between you and God. He's the Prince of it. Next, uh, let's have a look at Isaiah 53. Verse 9, we saw this quickly, I'll just repeat it again here, because it's important. Isaiah 53, verse 9. This is a detour, of course, but it's an important one. And this is Jesus, of course. The whole passage is about Jesus, 700 years before it happened. And he made his grave with the wicked. Now, who were the wicked? These were the two thieves. And with the rich in his deaths. Would you add an S to death, please? It's plural. He was with the rich in his deaths. There, are, there is an S there. The Young's literal translation, of course, gives the S. Which is absolutely right. I'll read it again. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Now let's look at Adam again for a moment. Adam died twice. He died spiritually, that's Genesis 3 verse 6, and 930 years later he died physically, having given birth to many, many 
children, or rather having been the father of many, many children on the way down, all of whom, by the way, had no sin nature through Adam. So he died twice. He died spiritually, 930 years later, he died physically. And Jesus died twice too. Jesus, as we've seen, did not have an old sin nature, but when he was put on the cross, the sins of the whole world were laid on him. He took the sins of the whole world on his own body, on the tree. And the moment that happened, God the Father cut off. God the Holy Spirit removed himself. Now we saw this, do you remember? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He died spiritually. Three hours later, his job being finished, he gave up the ghost. He, he said, that's it, it's finished, I've done it. And he died physically. Now, I'll just repeat it quickly. His spirit went to his father. He said, Father, into thy hands I dismiss my spirit. His soul went to paradise. How do we know that? Because he turned to the thief who'd been saved on, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, and he said, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. He went down into Hades, and he went to the part of Hades called paradise. I'm not going to deal with the divisions of hell today, but he went into paradise, his soul. His body went into the grave. Now there we get it. All right? Let's get back to Genesis 3, 15. A little detail, but I think an important one. Now notice what it says. Here we are, verse 15. The man is missed out, so we're not talking about someone with no sin nature. Jesus had to be born of a virgin birth, and without the virgin birth there is no salvation for you and me. And I will put enmity, this is verse 15, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed, their unbelievers, and her seed, that's Jesus, and all who believe in him. It, now it's actually he, he shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. The word bruise, by the way, is the Hebrew word meaning to crush. To crush. He shall crush thy head, and thou shalt crush his heel. Fantastic. Now what's it mean? First of all, let's do this. Thou shalt crush his heel. Why? A snake, you see, injects its poison into the feet. Jesus had no poison at all in his body. He had no sin. But through Adam, sin was injected into the bloodstream of the human race. And it passed right down to everyone. And the venom of sin spread to every person. Jesus was on that cross without a sin. And the venom was put on him. Because he took all the venom, the venom was removed from you and I. And I want you to visualize it in that way. You know, often a reference is made to the um, stake that Moses held up with the serpent on it. Jesus, when he was on the cross, became a serpent. The venom of the serpent entered into him. And he became sinful, black, so much so his father moved away. You know, he had to be black. Many people think this is disrespectful. He had to be black and blacker than sin on the cross. Because I was. And he died for me. And if I'd been on that cross, I would have been black and blacker than sin. Jesus took my place. Isn't it amazing? You see. And so Moses lifted up a stake with a serpent on it. Do you remember that? And every person that looked to it 
they were all right, they didn't die. And so Jesus took the venom of the serpent on the cross and everyone who looks to him had the venom removed from his system. Now this is salvation of the first order and it's brilliant. So it says, thou shalt bruise his heel. All the serpent has to do is bruise the heel. And the sin spreads right the way through. The venom gets in. But Jesus lanced the wound and took all the venom out. Hallelujah. He died for my sin. And notice, he shall bruise thy head. He's going to crush your head. And once Satan's head's crushed, he's finished. When Jesus said it's finished, he won the victory on the cross. This absolutely came to pass in the most wonderful way. And Jesus scored the triumph on the cross for you and and for me because he died he took our sins yet he rose from the dead and the triumphal shout that must have reverberated around heaven at that particular time because although Satan had bruised his heel at the same time Jesus had crushed absolutely the head of Satan hallelujah now it's a wonderful wonderful message isn't it in Adam all die in Christ shall all be made alive one man brought sin into the world and one man brought salvation into the world. Jesus. He couldn't have done it unless he'd been born of a virgin. Let's have a look at two more, more scriptures to end this evening. 1 Peter. The time goes far too quickly. Far too short, isn't it? Never mind. 1 Peter 2, 24. <coughs> And I'm going to begin actually 1 Peter 2, 22 and onwards. And this is talking about Jesus, who did no sin. He had no sin at all connected with him. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Remember how Adam fell through a tree. We're also redeemed through a tree. Another tree. This is the cross of Calvary. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What an amazing thing. And by the way, by whose stripes you were healed, how were you healed? Because you see, what, what needs healing? It's a wound, a gash, when two parts of your body are apart from one another and they should be together. So we were apart from God, but through his stripes we were healed. We were brought back into one. The stitches were put on and soon the wound was completely healed. And then it goes on, for, which means because, by whose stripes you were healed, because you were a sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Jesus is the good shepherd. And a good shepherd, by the way, is one who never loses a sheep. And he never has lost a sheep and never will lose a sheep, ever. A good shepherd isn't one who finds good pasture for his sheep. The sheep find their own pasture. The sheep do their own drinking. The sheep do everything for themselves. But the good shepherd is the one who rescues a sheep when he finds it in a briar or in the thorn bush. And you know, you were in the thorn bush. And one day Jesus looked down and presented you with the gospel. And you finally bleated out, Lord, you're the only one that can help me. 
and that that day the good bishop and the good shepherd of your souls came along and he pulled you out of the gorse bush, took you back into the flock and he's kept you there forever and he's a good shepherd, you'll never be lost again. Praise God, you might think you will be, but I've got good news for you, you're not. Let's turn to another one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Corinthians 5.21 this is without talking about these verses and once again I think I'll begin with my favourite verse 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 and onwards this was uh, one of the verses that proved to me the Bible was true when I was first saved because I didn't believe it and there was no one around who believed it actually either they said they did but uh, they'd never thought about it so how can you believe in something you haven't thought about and I was so put off I nearly gave the Bible up for good and I said Jesus you show me one passage that's right and I opened my Bible and it fell open at this place and I knew it was right therefore if any man be in Christ he is a new creature and I was and I was able to tick it and in my old Bible there's a big red tick just by that verse. It was the only verse in the Bible I believed, but it was enough to get me through. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Do you believe that? Behold, all things have become new, and when it says all things, it means all things. There is nothing in your past at all that can dog you for long. All things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation, by the way, is the gospel. And we have to preach the gospel. It's your duty to preach the gospel. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus didn't know any sin. He became sin for us. That we m might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, there was a swap. Your sin, Jesus took, and he gave you his righteousness. And you can have it. Your sufficiency is not of yourself. You aren't righteous because you're so great. You're righteous because he's so great. Oh, it's an amazing story, isn't it? Without the virgin birth, there is no salvation at all. Next week, having seen the answer, we're going to develop exactly how the answer solved the problem of the barrier between man and God. Amen.